Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host and you join me here at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We are in the Stand Up Tragedy HQ which is a kitchen slash dining area and we're recording the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. And what's more tragic than the things I can see around me? I can see uh, the dregs of coffee, I can see hip flasks filled with whiskey and I am afraid that I can see couscous. But let me assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that not everybody in the household eats as well or as badly as that might suggest either way. So what we're doing here in Edinburgh, we are doing a show until the 14th of August. That's one hour of tragedy every day, 6.30 till 7.30 at the Fiddler's Elbow, downstairs, venue 71. And we're also putting out a podcast every day of the festival. So at this point... We're recording them here, but later on they'll sort of be pre-recorded, but pre-recorded in Edinburgh, so that's kind of nice. And we're putting out our favourite tragic performers, and we're putting out our favourite tragic acts. And we're collecting tragic moments using the hashtag tragic moments. You can send us pictures, tweets, stories, videos, anything you like. Use the hashtag tragic moments and we will see them, share them, absorb your tragedy into ours and share it with more people. Because we're all about sharing the tragedy here, stand-up tragedy. So, the Edinburgh Festival is famous for its comedy. And it's a great place for comedians to experiment and try new material. Some have been doing it for years, others are just starting out. And we have been featuring loads of great live comedy in our show. But every comedian is taking what they do and giving it a tragic twist. Matthew Hyton has performed for us before at the Dog Star in Brixton and we asked him to come back and do a slot for us here in Edinburgh. You can see him doing It Came From Mud at 5.15 at Whistle Binkies until the end of August. The stand-up tragedy team heartily recommend that show. It features his amazing, surreal performances, features him being very honest about himself. He takes things that he finds amusing and he mixes them up in ways that you wouldn't expect and FYI it has a great twist at the end so here's what he did for us at Stand Up Tragedy Stand Up Tragedy what beautiful gig this is this is what the fringe should be you read what beautiful I walked in at harp beautiful storytelling beautiful poetry beautiful and then more storytelling and I'm going to be an idiot brilliant <laughs> where's that poignancy gone it's gone out with you Matthew uh, this is good are you having a good fringe it's great isn't it I mean it is of all the places in the country right now and I mean the UK when I say country <laughs> few people <laughs> the fringe has got to be one of the, the most tragic places ever I've seen, I have seen dreams snap in the middle of rainstorms here. <laughs> I've seen hope fade from people's eyes. It's amazing. Just see drama students really happy one day, lying on the street in the pajamas, and another day they just look like they've come off heroin for about seven years. <laughs> it's beautiful. But you've got to celebrate that, haven't you? Um, <laughs> it's great. A few years ago, this is tragic for me, but. It was so nice. I lived on Nicholson Square a few years ago, and I didn't mean to tell you this, but I just remember it. We had, like, a drama troupe who were, like, 
Glee, they were singing every morning, like no name, like ba ba ba, harmonising every morning. I was like, oh god, he's out by my window for a month. How am I gonna cope with this? And just one morning, they never came back, and you'd see them just wandering out about four a.m. eating pot noodles. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the most tragic thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I shouldn't, I shouldn't revel in it. Um, <laughs> But it was great. It was great. <laughs> I could tell you a story from my childhood, basically. Um, because basically, this is, this is in my show at the moment. It's um, something that happened to me when I was a kid. And I kind of, I have this big belief that you're a lot of different people through your lives. And there's very few constants. So, like, I started to worry, basically, this year about who I was. Because I realised... I know it's hard because I'm quite a curly-haired babe right now, but <laughs> I was a little scumbag when I was 16. I grew up in a town called Oldham, which, if you, anyone know it? Yeah, oh, you know it. Uh, you live a sheltered life, but you know Oldham. That's amazing. <laughs> not many people do, but about 60, you know it. Um, like, it's, it's, it's not the most pleasant place in the world. Like, to sum it up, if you ran from one side to the other and then smelt your clothes, they would definitely smell racism at the end of it. <laughs> it's, it's this horrible place, but at the same time, it's full of these really wonderful people, and that's the thing. I, don't, I kind of can't make the connection how I got from that little scumbag to here, but basically, I realised there's very few constants in my life, and I had insomnia one night, and I got out of bed and started to write, who am I, and try to figure it out. I spent two hours writing things down, at the end of it, he had two things written on a piece of paper. <laughs> they were, I like films. <laughs> and I like computer games. <laughs> and that was it. That was like my understanding of myself. And I do love films and computer games, do not get me wrong. Like, I love them so much. I'm writing my first film at the moment. And I think the idea is brilliant. I'm going to pitch it to you. I'm writing a KFC Origins film. <laughs> it's cool. It's a great idea. The, the, the synopsis basically is it's about the colonel's rise of the military and the people who died bearing your secrets. <laughs> yeah, you'd watch that. Um, and I love computer games. I, I don't know if there's anyone in. Anyone like computer games? Yeah. 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 It's, yes, nerds. I love them so much. And girls, if you didn't like me before, wait till you see this. I love them so much. I got this tattooed on me. It's how you do Hadouken on Street Fighter. <laughs> For life! Um, I've always loved them. Uh, so proud. Uh, I've always loved computer games to the point where some of my fondest memories are tangled up in these, these things. I think this is why I really sort of thought that was me. I basically, I used to have this friend when I was a kid. He was my best friend. He was called Biro. It's not his real name. He was called Ben Robbins. We amalgamated it before JLo made it cool. So, in your faces. And uh, also, if any nerds are in, a character in Flash Gordon. So. Yeah, whistle, exactly. <laughs> wow, I never wanted you more. Sorry, guys, I've got a girlfriend. Uh, so anyway, I've got this, this... We did this for years. I'd go around to his house every Wednesday to play computer games because every Wednesday his mum would let us lock ourselves in his room with snacks and play them. Because every Wednesday the uh, priest from our village used to go around to his house and give his mum an exorcism or something. So uh, they used to lock themselves in the bedroom. It sounded horrific, right? She was like, oh, Jesus, yes! Get it out! Oh! And, like, the headboards banging and stuff. So I can't go in there. So we'd play computer games, right? 
And there's this, when we're about nine, he started telling me the story that there's something under his bed. So I tell him this story, and it's sort of bullshit, there's nothing there. But he was really scared. And then one day, he got up from the bed to change the cartridge in the, the Mega Drive, and something grabbed his ankles and pulled him under the bed. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I couldn't get up to look at what it was because I, I was just crippled with fear. And I couldn't shout his mum because it was it was a bad day for the exorcism. I mean, you could hear it through the walls. She was like, oh, shit. So I couldn't count her in. And it took me 20 minutes to get the courage to get off the bed. And when I got off the bed and looked under underneath, um, all there was under his bed was a small doll that kind of looked like him. And I'm pretty sure it was him, because they had the same eyes, right? I know that sounds mental, but when his mum came out and asked where it was, there was police involvement, it took two years to wrap up, and she didn't believe me about this doll. So, long story short, I can find the zip to my bag. Kind of just been carrying him around for 20 years. So this is Biro. <laughs> Hi, Vero. <laughs> Don't like you, mate. <laughs> you know, and this is the sort of thing, like, that happened to me, it's changed me forever. Like, I can't, we just sort of make the most of it, don't we? <laughs> A lot of people find him creepy, I don't know why. <laughs> He's adorable. Um, I do this little thing, sometimes I tell him I love him, and he cries blood. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Um, are there any single women in, by the way? Because technically he's a 30-year-old man. And <laughs> anyone? It's not your day. Are you finding him a bit creepy? Is that what it is? <laughs> Did you just nod? Oh, because like, people find that creepy, but when I do this, they freak out. <laughs> Do you want to hold him? I'd rather not. Oh. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. He's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> He's alright. <laughs> He's a real lad as well. Like You can tell looking at me, Street Fighter tattoo, I'm not a real lad. But he's really laddie. He loves footballs, loves it. He, uh, he says his favourite's the Manchesters. I don't know what that means. Um, are you enjoying him? Uh, I am. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? He likes you. <laughs> Is this your girlfriend? No. Ooh. <laughs> Might have just stepped in some hot water. <laughs> are you, how do you know each other? It's friends from home. Really? How old are you two? Apparently, mind you're in a bar. 20. 20, good. Uh, <laughs> I think you could. I'm not good. I was gonna say, I think you guys would be a good couple, but I don't want to like ruin your friendship by bringing something awkward up. You keep looking at him. Um, like the basic, the thing is, I've, I've gone way off tangent there. Um, <laughs> tragic things happen, is the thing, and you kind of just have to make the most of them sometimes, and that's what we've kind of done. And we just live with this day for day, and it's it's been all right, isn't it, Biro? He's very shy. He's very shy. You're right, mate. Are you, are you nervous? 
<laughs> did you? <laughs> if anyone did see that, she used him to make a move on herself. <laughs> Amazing. There's no really no better ending than that. I think is that my time? I forgot to start my watch. Is that about right? Keep going. Just keep going until everyone's dead. <laughs> Just exhausted and we're dehydrated. <laughs> Oh, I'll tell you this other thing that I learned. That I don't know if this is tragic or just amazing, right? I'm gonna get my iPad out. Cause I'm doing pretty well, guys. Um... <laughs> I read this story, and I don't know if this is tragic, but it's amazing. It was in 2008. Has anyone, anyone heard this? There's a woman who sat on a toilet for two years. Why? What? Why? Exactly, right? I've got this. I've got a. People don't believe me about this so much. I have took screenshots of the Telegraph and Mail stories. So there's a woman stuck after two years on toilet. <laughs> um, basically, what happened... Oh, by the way, if you want to know what I looked like when I was a little scumbag... And... Hello! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, <laughs> She was on the toilet for two years. She was at her boyfriend's house, not even her own house. And she went in there and she just didn't get home. And every day her boyfriend, it's kind, of, it kind of endearing. He'd take her food and go, do you want to get off the toilet? She'd go, maybe tomorrow. And after two years he thought, maybe something's wrong here. <laughs> and like, they had to get specialists in. And you can read all this, you know, I've got it over there. Um, <laughs> they found her, I shouldn't laugh, but her legs had withered away a little bit because she'd not stood up for two years. In the same clothes, her tracky bottoms were like halfway down her knees. And this is the bad bit. The toilet seat, her skin had grown round it and she had pretty much fused to the toilet seat. And they had to take her and basically crowbar off the toilet seat. But the thing that's... I read this in 2008 and I still think about this so much. <laughs> You have to hope to God there was another toilet in that house. <laughs> Imagine how awkward that was. Uh, can you just uh, open up a little bit? How's your day going? <laughs> just for me. I'm getting a two-minute sign like, you've gone too far. <laughs> Those are the things I'm going to tell you. I'll probably take Biro back. You come in, mate? He's been drinking a lot. He's... Shall I leave you there? You're dying on your ass now, mate. Come on. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. And that's the awkward tension I like to end on. <laughs> I've been Matthew Hoyt and I'm doing a show. Some of that's in it. Most of it isn't. Um, at Whistlebinkies 5.15 every day. And it gets weirder than that. So... <laughs> Give yourselves a round of applause. You've been a beautiful audience. Thank you very much. Hi. Yes, I'm here. Yeah, hello. Hello. Yeah. It's nice, this one. I wish... I wish people could see it. I said it's nice. The first thing I looked at was a sign that said toilets. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you told a brilliant story about toilets. You obviously like them quite I do. I'm always in toilets. <laughs> not for two years. <laughs> yeah, not for two years, though, no. <laughs> no. Oh, it's amazing. Oh,
Matt, like, you really take on the idea of doing something different for stand-up tragedy. How did you decide on what you performed for us tonight? Um, I didn't, really. I just I kind of wing it uh, most of the time. I just... Like the most of the stuff that I'll probably never say on stage again, it just generally remembered it when I started talking. It was brilliant. Like I just said this before, but I'll tell tell the people listening. Seeing a, a drama kid lose hope and and eat a pot noodle at four in the morning was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. He looks so sad. How many fringes have you done last year? This is my fourth full year up here. Have you seen a lot of tragedy? I've seen fringes? so much. It's it's some of it's really some of it is really sad, obviously, because like. You have people, friends, it's hardest when it's friends that have got such beautiful, wonderful shows and then so many external like factors are, are stopping it. But then there's some just beautiful ones where you see it's horrible, but there's some deluded people. And it's just nice to watch reality seep in. It's happened to me as well. Like You come up here going, I'm going to make balloons. And then you just slowly go, oh, I'll be all right if I can just eat every day, which is great. I think that's that's part of your, a performer's life, though, isn't it? It's, they say comedians especially is like should be riddled with tragedy. How do you feel about your show this year? I love it. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> um, I generally really enjoying it. I think even though obviously I do uh, a lot of weird stuff in my shows, it's it's really nice. It's probably probably the most honest show I've ever had. So I'm talking about things in it that that I didn't know if I'd ever feel comfortable talking about on stage, and I kind of find a way to do that, and it's. So it's almost cathartic, so that's good. Just like stand-up tragedy. Just like stand-up tragedy, yeah. Response from the audience. <laughs> Mixed. Um, like, some, some, like, today was lovely. We had a really nice... But Saturdays are hard. Like, you get a lot of people just wondering, going, oh, I want to see some comedy, and then I do sort of this weird story for an hour, and then they're like, I don't get it. <laughs> so some people, it's not for everyone, obviously, but... The people it resonates with, it's, it's beautiful. And, like, that's what it should be. Like, it should be subjective. I, I do what I do, not to just please everyone, but because I generally enjoy it, so, yeah. I know, I can see you laughing on stage. Yeah, I know, like, sometimes I'm the only one laughing in the gig and everyone's like, is this guy insane? Do you enjoy performing for stand-up tragedy? I love it. You've got such a nice night. It's just, it's really, it's like... You see, as a comedian, you go on so many nights as comedians, 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 and you kind of get this idea of performing. And then when you see do, people doing storytelling and, and instruments and poetry and stuff, it's, it's nice to see other people's mechanisms because like my friend, um, he's doing stand-up, and he's in a play as well, and he was saying today, like, our instinct is when there's a silence, wondering why there's no laughter there. <laughs> so it's nice to, to watch other people and how they work. It's... Yeah, it's beautiful. I went on about that too long. It's good, basically. That was Matthew Hyton, live at the Fiddler's Elbow. And you also heard him talking with our producer, Brian, after the show. You can find more about him at www.matthewhyton.co.uk. Follow him on Twitter, at Matt Hyton. And you can hear him on our previous podcast if you listen back to our back catalogue. You can find his podcast and more through SoundCloud, iTunes and the Stitcher Smart Radio app where you can download a little piece of tragedy directly into your smartphone in your pocket for free. Stand Up Tragedy are a part of the PBH Free Fringe, an amazing collective of artists that come together and create something wonderful, which is spaces where performers don't have to pay to play and shows where audiences 
can come in for free and decide how much they think the show is worth. And this is a great place for new comedians to come in and try out new material. So here we have Alistair Clark, who's been working hard this year promoting his first solo stand-up show at the regional Free Fringe fundraisers. He's a new comedian from Liverpool and he spoke to our producer Bryony about the ideas behind his new show and how comedy became a way for him to process his personal tragedies. Follow Alistair at Alistair underscore Clark, which is A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R underscore Clark without an E, so C-L-A-R-K. His solo show is called Alistair Clark B.A. Ons and is on at 12 5pm every day at the Cabaret Voltaire part of the Free Fringe so absolutely free he's part of a sketch group with his friends called Ugh! it's the we didn't realise the Free Fringe programme isn't alphabetized show Whew. at alphabetized like, it's got a GH at the end I always thought it was you should keep that in. He's part of a very hard to say sketch group with his friends, which is called. Ah! It's the We Didn't Realise the Free Fringe Programme Isn't Alphabetized show at 3 pm downstairs at the Cowgate Head. I may have said alphabetized incorrectly. Alphabetized. How Alphabetized, apparently. Uh, my producer Brian is telling me. It's at 3 pm downstairs at the Cowgate Head. Bryony went along and saw it and she says it's a really funny sketch show with really brilliant ideas. She heartily recommends it. So I'm here with Alistair Clark and would you like to explain what your show is at the Fringe this year then? First show, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's called um, Alistair Clark BA Ons. It's, a, uh, it's an autobiographical stand-up show about my life at university. So it sort of starts off with, uh, with freshers weekends, with graduation, sort of everything in between. You struck me throughout the whole piece as... Somebody who, at the time, you took yourself very seriously. Anything bad that would happen, it meant a lot to you. But now you've kind of turned that on its head and you use it literally as a comedy routine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Um, I think at the time, like, I was just, I just, I was, I was very immature. I hadn't really grown up, and I think that's something that really sort of happened during and after university for me. I think, you know, the person I was when I was nineteen was totally different to the person I am now. So I think it's very easy to, you know, chastise my past self because I do genuinely think they were a bit of a tit and uh, and it is a bit embarrassing but um, I think there's something you know just funny in that you know yeah I mean I, I talk about stuff in the show that you know really upset me I mean there's stuff like it was stuff about my grandma dying which is a bit dark there's some good gags in there though uh, and, and uh, in particular about one girl that was that you know that I really really fell for and then it all went horribly which has ruined the show for you a little bit um, if, you, if you're coming along but it's, it's good anyway uh, don't worry about that. But basically, yeah, I think I think there's something really uh, honest about heartbreak and and pain. I think there's there's some really human elements in it. I think that's ultimately where humour comes from. It's from this recognition of humanity. So I mean, in terms of actually performing it, I remember the first time I did. Like, if I talk about, I, I say things in that show I would never say in real life. Like, I would just, you know, I'm not that open about myself in real life. The only place I can really be honest is on stage. I just remember the first time I performed it. It was just a relief. It was like, oh. Okay. At stand-up tragedy, we describe it as a cathartic experience. Yeah, totally. I, I, the, the, my one worry with it is, though, is that I, I hope that it doesn't set this sort of trend where when I'm upset with something, I just turn it into a routine and then make it fine. Because then, because like, I mean, obviously, like I wrote this a long time after the stuff had happened, and I, you know, like, the, the, there was a lot of real emotions felt there. And if I, 
if it, if it's sort of like a quick fix to just go on stage and talk about it i don't really want to turn it into therapy you know what i mean like it would be it'd be horrible it stopped me really living in you know, living through situations where perhaps I, sh- I could learn something but yeah um like where else could you get inspiration from for tragedy or anything like that well i don't know i mean uh, it's not something I set out to do. Um, it was something that, that the show became because I wanted to talk about these things. And ultimately, there is a lot of humour in them. Like, there's some really, you know, there's funny bits. I mean, there's, my life wasn't that interesting, but it, like, a lot of things happened that were very coincidental and it's, it almost would seem a bit contrived. Do people expect you to be kind of really happy-go-lucky all the time, comedian, haha? Uh, I don't know. It depends, you know. Like, I mean, a lot of my stuff, I mean, you saw my second show where I was just literally dicking around on stage you know like and that is that is great fun and I do really enjoy that but um you know I remember when I was writing this show I was sort of like I wanted to try something out where I um I didn't know whether people would laugh and it was going to be honest and I was going to see how people reacted and basically what I did was I I wrote this routine about sort of personal identity it was about another girl actually uh sort of loosely my, my opening joke is about me being posh and how I it was a real problem for me growing up and it was a real problem for a girl I used to see and basically she used to go on how po- about how, how posh I was and I say oh well I always thought she'd actually break up with me because I was posh but in the end she didn't in the end we broke up because uh, because she wouldn't let me eat caviar off a naked body you know people laugh at that and the thing is you laugh at that and then you make a lot of assumptions about me like as who I, I am as a person and it's kind of weird in stand-up how you have to address that you know the most distinctive thing about me gigging in Liverpool especially is my voice so if I come on and I don't do something about that and, and let them know it's okay to laugh at me, then they feel awkward and they don't. They're like, all oh, right, make us laugh then funny boy. You know what I mean? So it was a very... Um, so I, I wrote that routine and basically the whole thing sort of goes through and then I, I talk about myself and about how, that, that, how all the misconceptions that routine has and how um, at the end I, I sort of just start talking very honestly about what I'm like in relationships, how like my, you know, my neuroses, all these things, you know, my anxieties about the world and all this stuff. And at the end I just go... There was one thing about that opening joke that was true. Uh, there was a girl. Uh, but she didn't... And she did used to go about me being posh. That was true. The things that aren't true are, you know, the whole hummus thing, the, the caviar thing, the whatever it was. Uh, yeah, that's not true. Um, the reason why she broke up with me was because she saw me doing a gig. Uh, not like this. It's not all, like, self-help. Um, like, you know, when I was being good. And, uh, and you know, I was happy-go-lucky. You know, I was this confident person. I talk about the confident person I project on stage. I say... And she fell for that and then when it turned out I wasn't that in real life she ended up not being able to deal with that and so she basically I say oh she's seen this routine maybe she didn't know what she was getting herself in for and I just walked off stage and it was so weird because by the end there was about two minutes where no one had laughed it was just me saying facts about myself and then that story and literally people were just there going oh and it was almost like as good as a laugh you know what I mean like exactly you really kind of you get you go into a room and you feel it somebody yeah, is yeah. just listening to your story just having a conversation basically back and forth on the stage we get that all the time at stand-up tragedy with different mediums yeah, but yeah. you've found yours in comedy yeah absolutely I think it's it was it was nice to do that because one it tested out it tested that 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 idea for the show um, like someone I really like um, who inspired me a lot writing this show was uh, Simon Amstel you know who's just like you know so honest about himself and like it's just you know brutal honesty and I think there's something you know you recognise a human in that and I think that ultimately if you're on a stage even if you're just dicking around like I was today you know you you should be doing something interesting you know like there should be something there should be some interest like today I was going on about conspiracy theories and about the about people's civil liberties being taken away and it you know it's a silly routine with silly jokes you know but like ultimately I think there is a point there and people maybe should think about these things and um, 
something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think I think if you're on a stage and you've got, you know, you've got the attention of a room full of people, right? That's quite, you know, that's quite important that you know everyone's listening to you. And if you just go on and say vacuous things about how you, uh, you know, you hate your girlfriend or you're on about Facebook or Babe Station, it's like, well, you're just wasting an opportunity to really say something, you know. Um, and maybe that makes me, you know, a pretentious comedy snob, but never mind, I suppose. How are you, um, how are you enjoying your first Fringe? Uh, well, it's not my first Fringe. I've done sketch shows the, uh, the last two years. I, uh, I did sketch projects. Um, I did the Maybe part in 2011, which was really, really tough because we didn't know what we were doing. Last year I did a show called The Clap, which went really well because we did know what we were doing. And then this year is my first sort of... I'd never done stand-up at the Fringe. I, I, it's kind of like I, I feel a bit bad when I tell people how long I've been doing this because it's not all that long. I started stand-up in October last year properly. I'd done about seven gigs before that, and then I sort of was like, right. My last sketch project went, like, just dissolved. Me and the guys wanted to kill each other, so we thought, let's just leave it. We're all friends again now, which is nice. But um, and literally I thought, well, okay, let's do stand-up. And I sort of just fell into it in a weird way, and I'm really enjoying it. And it's nice doing this because now I'm sort of doing open spots and I've got a second show, and you know, I'm, I'm very busy, and I, I absolutely love performing BA Ons. It's the best thing I've done, I think. And people have said that, not just me. And um, I think it's a really nice sort of, exp- yeah. It's a lovely, it's a lovely show to perform because. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Is, is it quite surprising where you like you found yourself now post university? Me and you, are, you probably don't know. I'm in the same situation. Right, I yeah. just graduated in May. I'm like yeah, yeah. out there in the world. I don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah, totally. Are you quite kind of satisfied with how things are going? I mean, I think it was really tough. I mean, I've actually my sort of bread and butter standard routine is about unemployment, uh, which was something that I had to face for a long time after graduating because obviously I can't make all my money doing comedy yet but um, that is the dream Um, and like it was really weird because I moved back to Liverpool because I knew comedy promoters and I had like you know the network of the guys and stuff like that so I I was in this really weird place where I sort of got back my so yeah my social circle was just totally gone like everyone had left and even those that were still at university had money I didn't you know and it was very weird and those were a very tough couple of months like especially and then you know any point went on longer than that but I got used to it and it was sort of a very uh you, you know like I think I think there is a problem like I I wish I could talk about it in the show like you know that about how how messed up everything is because it isn't the case now you can just come out and get a job that isn't that isn't how it works and if you want to be creative and do something and I, I just never would have forgiven myself if I'd never tried this you know and I think it's so tough and I just don't I don't see how it's going to get better Would you praise the Free Fringe as a platform for new artists like everywhere? Oh, absolutely like this is the only way I could afford to do the Fringe like I think everyone on here owes Peter Buckley Hill a, a huge personal debt like it's I mean like I, I did this I, you know I used to do this for a bit of fun you know what I mean like I used to be a sketch comic and I really liked it and it was nice because I got on stage and people looked at me and thought I was funny and all that stuff whereas now like you know I, I, I want something more than that you know and like I couldn't do the fringe without that and this is the best month of my year like not only do I I hopefully might break even because my overheads are fairly low because I don't have to pay for a space um you know, like, not only that, but I get to perform every day, hone my skills, and also I get to have a great time. I get to see loads of other stuff as well, because being here, obviously watching the best people in the world do what they do is really good. That was going to be my last question. Any recommendations? Oh, my God. Uh, well, if you follow me on Twitter, at Alistair underscore Clark, that's A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R underscore Clark, C-L-A-R-K, no E, um, I'm actually uh, doing a Twitter review of every show I see 
at the fringe. So basically, I've got like 140 character reviews going up sporadically. Uh, so far, my picks would be probably if you like sort of clowning solo stuff like Squid Boy is absolutely amazing like I watched that and I was like I want to go do a clowning course that's on at the assembly uh, Roxy about 9.30 I think uh, The Pin uh, I heard a lot about them last year if you're into sketch comedy and I really am um, I, I heard about, a lot about them last year didn't get to see them saw them this year brilliant uh, that's about 6 o'clock at the Pleasance Courtyard um as far as anything else, anything that was free that I thought was good. Well, obviously, my mates are doing shows. Uh, Jolly Boat, who are amazing, 7.30 at base. They, um, yeah, they're a musical comedy double act, and they are really, really good, like well worth seeing. Um, totally Ninja at the Voodoo Rooms, if you're looking for like a magic comedy show. But obviously, that clashes with me, so don't go to that if you're going to come to mine. Uh, that's that's 12.30 at the Voodoo Rooms. Uh, yeah, I'd say, I'd say that's, probably, that's probably enough recommendations. But follow me on Twitter, and you'll get... Like a thought on everything I see. So we hope you enjoyed the comedy that you've heard today. We're not just about comedy, we're about tragedy, but we take all kinds of tragedy here and we like to laugh as well as cry. Dry your eyes, it's time to go. And we're going to keep bringing you comedy, spoken word, true stories and all the rest of the kinds of tragedy that we can gather it's the end of the show and remember that tragedy is best shared so come back and share some more tragedy with us tomorrow, either at our live show or by listening to our podcast tell everybody about it, we're on Facebook where you can friend us, we're on Twitter where we're at Stand Up For Tragedy and we are all over the internet so check us out at www.standuptragedy.co.uk it's time to go and for now the tragedy is over it's time to go it's time to go This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins with audio production from Stephen Harvey. The music comes from Sam Wilkinson, who you can email at radiojuan at gmail.com. The rest of the music was produced by George Brufton, written by the reactionaries with added bagpipes from Vaughan Grande. I'm Dave, I'm your host, and the tragedy is once again over.